welcome to the second podcast of my Back Window series. In 1959, my father bought a baby blue Plymouth station wagon. I was 12, and any time we traveled, my sister and I sat in the rear-facing back seat. Everything we saw was past tense. We couldn't say, let's stop at that Stuckey's, because it was already disappearing behind us. These stories, like the view through the back window, are observations through my personal window into the past. I call this episode Baseball, Pete's Paddle, and Life Lessons. When we entered the fifth grade, my class moved from Fort Mill Elementary, later Carruthers School, up the hill to Fort Mill Central School, later named A.O. Jones. At Central School recess, sports were encouraged as a great way for boys to work off energy with good, healthy competition. Our principal, a former football coach, walked the playground during recess encouraging every form of competition. He would hand out nickels to anyone who could make five free throws in a row or kick five field goals. I remember one repeat eighth grader who was a whiz at field goals. I said something within range of Mr. Reynolds one day and he said, yeah, I just wish he could pass. I was naive enough at the time to think he was still talking about football. Times were different in the mid fifties. While outside play was boisterous, we all despised rainy days. Everyone at the school was lined up in the halls in single file and we would walk around the entire building upstairs and down for the entire 15-minute recess. Mr. Reynolds, in his 20-year-old brown suit with a huge shoulder pads, would stroll like General Patton, ensuring that no one talked or misbehaved. In seventh grade, the great paradigm shift was upon us. The girls began to stand around to watch us play baseball. Suddenly, every play mattered more, and the game tempo increased in direct relation to how many girls were watching. I was usually a pretty reliable hitter, but in one pride-infused game, I had a little boinker to the infield. Unwilling to look bad in front of the girls, I attempted to run out a single. The ball and I arrived at first base at the same time, and I ran over my good friend Tommy Patterson in an attempt to make him drop the ball. The nefarious ploy worked. He hit the ground and dropped the ball. Donnie Shaw, The best athlete in our class was the pitcher and roared over to me with blood in his eye. I'm convinced that without the presence of the girls, the incident would have been short-lived. Instead, we went from shoving to throwing punches. I have no love for fighting, but the moment overwhelmed both of us. Donnie was smaller and tough. I was big, but barely able to hold my own. By the time our principal arrived, at least one of us was secretly glad to see him. Mr. Reynolds, Pete to his friends and in whispers on the playground called us both and offered us his standard option for fighters. We could choose to put on boxing gloves and fight it out in front of the whole school or we could take two licks from his paddle. As fearsome as Pete's paddle was, we both had enough fighting. He led us into the building and sat us outside his office while he let the tension grow. Donnie went in first. He took the two licks without uttering a sound but the smack of the paddle let me know that Pete was not holding back. He came out of the office with a grimace on his face that told me that the paddle hurt. In the presence of Pete's paddle, we were all allies. When my turn came, after one swing of the paddle, boxing gloves began to look like the better option. I clenched my teeth and kept equally quiet, but was completely convinced that fighting and trips to the office were not for me. I learned later in life that when Mr. Reynolds called my father to report the incident, he told Dad not to punish me again. 
They weren't just playing, he told Dad. They were fighting like men. I only faced the paddle once more. We were in my uncle's seventh grade math class, and my uncle, Bubber, Robert Case, went out of the way to show no favoritism. Bubber was one of my mother's older brothers and always took very good care of her. When Mom was growing up and needed clothes that her mother would not buy, Bubber was always there to help. Bubba was a good athlete and played golf and tennis as well as being a good diver. He was always fastidious in his clothing and only married for a brief time late in life. During World War II, he served as a line company clerk in the African campaign and went on to the Italian campaign. He was at the Battle of Monte Cassino and received his combat infantryman's badge, a bronze star, and had two battle stars on his campaign ribbon. Bubber, my mother's mispronunciation of brother, was never shortened to the more common Bubba. He and I had a complicated relationship. I was the oldest grandchild, and so Uncle Bubba first doted on me. He would bring me a toy whenever he took any kind of trip. Once he bought a plastic Mr. Peanut character about a foot tall. I was playing in the backyard on Greg Street and accidentally broke the toy within minutes. Bubba swore at the time he would never bring me another toy, and true to his word, he never did. Later in the year of the fight, Donnie Shaw was misbehaving in Mr. Case's seventh grade math class and was sent to the office. When I thought it was funny and laughed, Mr. Case sent me out too. Both of us felt one more strike of Pete's paddle and we came back to class red-faced and I'm sure red elsewhere. I will always believe Bubba pulled the trigger too quickly on me in a strange form of anti-favoritism. I've always hated injustice, especially when it applied to me. When I told Dad my side of the story, he summed up the situation pretty well. Think of all the times you deserved to get punished and didn't, he told me. To be honest, I was a complete disappointment to Mr. Case and every other math teacher who ever tried to teach me. Something in me rebels against formulas and always has. Middle school is the time of bullying, and although, or perhaps because I was tall, I became the focus of bullying by another eighth grader who for a year pushed or shoved or punched or threatened me. On Halloween night in my eighth grade year, my friends and I ran into Gene in front of the police station at the bottom of Main Street. As stupid as it sounds, it was the old, your candy or your life routine. I'd had enough and refused to give up my hard-begged candy. Gene punched me in the chest and we wrestled and punched until I landed the gold standard of punching. A left to the groin. Gene doubled over, all the while threatening me with every kind of retribution, and his cronies joined in. My friends and I retreated in a disorderly fashion that looked much like we were fleeing for our lives. The retribution never came. From that day on, Gene only glared at me to save face. Facing up to a bully may change the bully's attitude, but unlike the popular stories, it did not relieve my anxiety. I was still wary every day of the eighth grade. Evidently, Gene dropped out after the 8th grade. I was a senior in high school before I ran into him again. I was working at the men's shop on Main Street, and he came in to buy some shoes. I stopped growing after 8th grade, and so I was still the same 6'1 beanpole I had been before, but he seemed much smaller. He was a little sheepish, and I didn't find him at all intimidating. He bought a pair of work boots and paid without anyone mentioning the past. I was miserable with his bullying, and would never condone it in any way. But as I look back, in his second year of eighth grade, I believe Gene already saw himself as a failure. I took that revelation into my teaching career. 
My insight did not always produce success in my students. During one of my first years at Fort Mill High School, I was teaching a class full of difficult students. Lee sat at the back of the class and had little interest in anything I had to say. When I assigned book reports, I tried to help the students select books that might interest them. For Lee, who was not an interested reader, I suggested Old Yeller, a relatively easy book about a boy and a dog. I had the book in my class collection and let him borrow it. A week later, before the report was due, I was teaching from the front of the class when I saw a reflected glint at the back. Lee was showing another student a hawk-billed knife, a common item in a small mill town. He was not threatening anyone, but I saw the knife, and everyone in the class knew I saw it. I had no choice but to act. I walked back to Lee's desk and held out my hand and told him to give me the knife. We looked each other in the eye, and he hesitated a moment, then held it out, blade first. I reached out and took the knife and told Lee to go to the office. Only halfway back up the aisle did I realize the stupidity of taking a knife blade first from anyone. This was not Lee's first offense, and he was expelled for the rest of the year. I explained that no one was threatened but to no avail. I felt terrible about his expulsion, and a couple of days later I pulled his file from the office. I got as far as the first page, where the photograph of a first grader, dressed up for picture day, full of hope and smiling at the camera made me close the file and take a minute before I handed it back to the secretary. I felt personally responsible for that first grader who had lost that smiling excitement and grown into a big, surly-looking 16-year-old. About a week later, I was writing on the board, facing away from the class, when everything got quiet. I turned around, and Lee was standing in my doorway. I was speechless, and he broke the silence. Mr. Hill, he said, I brought your book back. I didn't know what to say then, and I don't know now. He handed me the book back, turned, and was gone.